Um, well, everyone, welcome to this panel on day one of the Jewish Psychedelic Summit. Um, I personally am really excited to be here, and I'm really excited um, to be moderating this conversation between some incredible panelists. Um, so welcome to Did Psychedelics Play a Role in Ancient Jewish Practice? Um, I'll briefly introduce you to our panelists, and then we'll take it away. Um, so Dr. David Elon, a native of Los Angeles, David Elon is the director of the Nelson Gluck School of Biblical Archaeology at the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. He has excavated at Tel Arad, Tel Megiddo, and Tel Dan. He teaches at the Hebrew, Hebrew Union College and has taught at Tel Aviv University, Hebrew University, and John Hopkins University. He specializes in mortuary archaeology, religion, and ritual in the Chalcolithic period, groundstone artifacts, and the Middle Bronze Age and the early Iron Age of the Southern Levant. Since 2005, he has directed the excavations at Tel Dan in northern Israel. He is the editor of the journal of the NGSBA Archaeology. David has just completed a sabbatical year at the Center for the Study of Origins of the University of Colorado Boulder, and he has recently begun writing about the use of psychotropic substances in the ancient Near East. Um, next, I'd like to introduce Ariella Powers. Ariella is an interdisciplinary artist, ritualist, organizer, and producer. Her work centers prayer as a way to remember the enchantment that emerges when we align with God and the natural rhythms. Her space-making work turns the daunting task of organizing into a ritual art, merging the sacred and the mundane. She is a student of Jewish mysticism, the Sefirot, the Hermetic, and the Hermetic wisdom teachings. Ariella is in service to the plant teachers and allies supporting ceremony and healing spaces in the wider Bay Area. Danny Nemu is a writer, researcher, and rainmaker into the ethnogens in the Bible, revelation in the history of science, linguistics, and cognition, and academic prejudice against traditional knowledge systems. His main scriptural interest is in the psychopharmacology, I'm so sorry, psychopharmacology ecology of resins used by ancient Israelites and in what the different faces of the divine tell us about our brains. Um, last but definitely not least, we have Rabbi Harry Rosenberg. Originally from Queens, New York, Rabbi Harry Rosenberg is, is, a theological, is the Theological Research Institute's co-founder. Rabbi Rosenberg is also the founder of Lost Tribes Beverage, a brewing company that preserves recipes from tribes around the world. Lost Tribes Beverage seeks to build a brewery and a healing resort on his farm in Galilee. Over the years, he has developed a theory detailing the overlap between Kabbalistic teachings with that of Psychedelic Plant wor World, hosted by WokeCourses.com, in case anyone's interested in learning more. Um, there are also sources there, so you can definitely check it out. Um, Rabbi, Rosen's, Rabbi Rosenberg is a descendant of the Vilna Gaon, who reinforced a principle that to fully understand the spiritual realm one must be proficient in the sciences. Welcome panelists. Um, to kick us off, I'd like to invite um, the panelists starting with, um, with Dr. David Elon to give us a brief introduction to kind of their work um, so we can dive right in soon thereafter with questions and dialogue with one another. Um, so Dr. Elon, take it away. So can we share the screen? Yes, um, okay. you should you should have access to be able to do that. 
Not yet. Let's see. Nope. Can't do that. Not working. So um, I could just talk. Um, sure. Yes. And okay. I will try my best. Knew that we were making you go so you can see. Okay. Let's see now. Not yet. Okay, in any case, um, my uh, what I would talk about is a bit wonkish. Um, uh, I look for the evidence in the archaeological record for psychotropic substances. Um, uh, the, the earliest occurrences of different substances, uh, but also evidence for their use. Uh, I have to tell you that it's a bit thin on the ground. And when I go through the literature, even the scientific literature to some extent, okay, I'm a host now, I'll share it in a second, I find that there is a whole lot of stuff in the literature, which frankly is not based on anything. Uh, it's maybe a word that sounds like it should be something, or it's wishful thinking. And this leads to the point that needs to be emphasized that scholars, like other people, tend to find what they're looking for. So let's see if this works now, and I'll sort of briefly go through this. Okay. Oh, I don't want to start the traffic. So um, a little bit about psychotropic substances in the ancient world, and I'll just sort of zip through these things, and we can talk about them later. So obviously, one place to start would be the poppy. Uh, and uh, what is the evidence for the opium poppy? Um, Part of it is iconographic, and this is one of the most famous objects. It's the poppy goddess from uh, Crete uh, that dates to the post-palace period. And you can clearly see, and this is, everybody agrees on this, that this goddess has uh, a tiara on her head with three poppies stuck into it. And she looks like she's in a trance state. A lot has been written about that. But this is one of the key objects that tell us that people are accessing the, care, the features of the poppy of Papover Somniform uh, already 3,400 years ago or so. And we can see these also in signet rings from about the same period from the Palace of Mycenae, the Mycenaean culture right there, probably another goddess. Um, in Israel proper and in the Western, uh, Eastern Mediterranean region, we have a certain kind of vessel, which is called a bilbil, uh, which is held to look like, in fact, a uh, a, a poppy, if it's held upside down, like that, where you can see the uh, botanical features of the plant in the vessel itself. And it is held that these vessels contained opium. This has gone back and forth. There have been chemical analyses carried out. Some people say, yeah, it is. And others say, no, it's not. Most recently, it looks like it is. Uh, we also have wands. Uh, some of them are on display in the Israel Museum, for example, uh, which are apparently poppy capsules. Others are pomegranates. So it's not always easy to tell the difference between the two. The one on the far right is certainly a, a poppy. Um, what is the evidence from the botanical side of things? Um, we find lots of poppy remains of the actual plant fragments in bogs in Europe. And the theory is that um, this pro these things were probably always there. It may, they, the poppy may have been native to Europe, especially Southern Europe. Uh, and perhaps it migrated from Turkey 
to the north, it's still an open question. And that's the subject of research being carried out at Basel University right now. The earliest seeds that we have, and seeds are what tell you that they're actually growing poppies, come from Tiryns, a Mycenaean site in the Peloponnese of Greece. When you have seeds, you're looking at cultivation. So around 1300 BCE. If we go to Israel, the earliest evidence it comes from Ashkelon, and that only dates to the 7th century BCE. You have to remember that poppy seeds are really, really tiny. It's really hard to find them. Uh, and this was just published in, uh, well, this is, and this is the hard evidence for the actual use of opium from a sealed juglet that came from a tomb in Egypt dating to about 1400 BC. And because it was sealed, they could actually find the opium alkaloids. So it's definite by now. Opium was being used. It's just pretty rare. Uh, and that's what they were checking. Um, how would they partake of opium? Uh, I have published, an, I'm publishing an article now about the uh, vessel that's called a kernos that uh, I think was being used as sort of a hookah pipe to smoke opium through the mouth of the bull. It's called a protome. Uh, the, opium, the opium itself would have been placed in the cup where the birds are drinking out, and then there would be a liquid in the bottom, maybe even containing psychotropic substances, and it would have been sucked in and drunk perhaps through the bull's mouth. Cannabis also um, exists. Uh, we know that it existed in Asia, uh, many in the Ice Age even. Uh, the theory went until recently that it gradually spread from Central Asia to China first in India, and then to the Scythians in the in southern southeastern Europe, and then from there to the Middle East and into Europe. Uh, there, that's the word for hemp in Chinese, and, and it's, it occurs in ancient texts. Now, very recently, this article written about three years ago has pretty much established that cannabis cannabis was indigenous to Europe, going way back into prehistory, uh, and this was done by looking at fossil pollen and doing statistical analyses. I won't go into the details, but cannabis was always around. We don't find it in the Middle East, and that's a problem. Uh, so that's going to be something for future research. Um, cannabis smoking, the first evidence for that comes from the Pamir mountain area in western China uh, in braziers that look like this in a cemetery. The red dots mark uh, the actual um, remains of braziers containing TC, uh, TC, CDB and TC, THC. Um, that's one, one of the braziers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in just for a moment because um, we have some great questions pertaining to cannabis shortly. Um, I'd love to move on. Thank you so much. Um, and okay. get back to these slides and this topic in a few minutes. Um, Ariel, I'd like to invite you um, to kind of give us some opening remarks here. Thank you so much. Great. And if you could stop sharing your screen also, I don't have right. the ability to do that now, but that'd be awesome. Thank you. Got it. Thank you so much, Dr. David. Um, and hello, everyone. It's such an honor to be here. Um, I just want to open by uh, saying welcome to all of the ancestors and the ones that have gone by our Jewish ancestors and our other ancestors, as many of us have kind of mixed and found different ways. I also want to give gratitude for all of 
the psychedelic ancestors and all of the people who have laid the groundwork for all this work that we're doing. It's just, you know, hearing the opening remarks and hearing everyone speak um, and hearing Shefa Gold, Rabbi Shefa Gold speak and, and Rick, it's like, it's just amazing for me to be here um, as a young Jew who really comes to this from, um, you know, I grew up, I grew up pretty religious. My, my family's from South Africa. And, um, you know, it was just kind of this thing that you did when you asked my grandmother, she just said, you know, we do it because, because we do it, you know, that's why. And so uh, coming to it through the plant medicines is really how I arrive here um, and, you know, have a deep relationship with um, the Wachuma medicine and the Native American church here in Berkeley. And, you know, that that opening really has allowed me to return to Jewish mysticism and Judaism. And I find this interrelationship with like the people of the book and the people of the land and how, you know, we really are both. And I think as, you know, young Jews and people coming to Judaism, finding Judaism, which is where, you know, a lot of my work is, um, is centered, at least my Jewish work. Um, it's just a really, really powerful juncture that we find ourselves in and creating more conversations about it and just kind of destigmatizing it is a really incredible thing. Um, so I call my work space making and it's really informed by a lot of the ancient altar making practices. So as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, Exodus has extensive explanation of how we build altars. And, um, so I've been learning about that over many years and, um, you know, really informed by these ancient practices and how we can use them today as, you know, uh, portals for God, but also uh, just to learn how to be in relationship and to tend the sacred um, through the physical. Um, so let's see, I will, we'll drop. Thank you all. Excellent. Thank you so much, um, Ariella. Looking forward to hearing more from you as well. Um, Danny, please tell us your opening remarks. Thanks, Rachel, and thanks everyone. I'm super excited to be here. Um, I'm mostly interested in uh, looking at the Bible through the lens that the Ramban suggests when he when he makes an alternative arrangement of the first few words of the Bible. Barosh Yitbara Elohim, in the head was created or is created Elohim. And starting that book as within the head is very interesting because there are all kinds of characters in that book who do things that we might describe as um, um, strange, um, uh, well, even psychiatric experience um, or psychic experience or psychological experience. And I think the Bible tells us a lot about what's going on in the head. Um, and these things are often pathologized. So the kind of um, hearing of voices and seeing of visions, um, compulsions, um invasive thoughts all those kind of things that we see in the stories of Moses for example um and obsession as well um I kind of like us to re reclaim or rehabilitate those those ideas uh looking at looking at psychic experience mental experience um from the perspective of the bible so I'm super interested in that um <clears throat> I think you see it all the way through the bible you see um in uh, kind of indicators of epileptic um behaviors if you like and particularly the aura symptoms before a epileptic episode in stories of uh, Daniel for example um, feeling presences and um, seeing things on the walls and all that kind of stuff um, and again I just want to really underline that I'm not saying that that's what God is or the or that these visions are I'm not patholo pathologizing it 
Um, and I'm also very interested in the way the different god names seem to um, seem to um, suggest things that are in our uh, neuro uh, neuro makeup. Like, why is it, for example, that Adonai Elohim makes things and then gives them to Adam to name? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a different part of your brain which puts an edge on something to the part which names something. And then once something is named, it's, uh, or in Hebrew, that's Shem. And the word Shema means to perceive, uh, to hear, but also to perceive and more specifically to perceive. So it seems that the way the brain works is it can only perceive something when it has a name for it. Uh, I find that absolutely fascinating. And one aspect of the way the Bible can give us an insight into the mind <clears throat> and the brain is through this the psychopharmacology of these uh, these various resins, which we'll get on to uh, soon. So, yeah, Jani Nemu is obviously a pen name. And my real name is Danny Diskin. I don't tend to share that. So please don't tell anybody. But I'm uh, my great, 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 great uncle was Joshua Lee Diskin, who was the, um, the Talmudist. And um, <clears throat> I'm very fond of him. Um, he was described as fanatical and uncompromising and uh, very pedantic. Um, and um, I share some of his political views, but I find him quite intolerant of other places, uh, other <clears throat> um, other ways of being, perhaps. And um, I think we can learn a lot if we undo a little bit of that. I think that shamanism has a lot to tell us about um, uh, Israelite religion, and I think Israelite religion has a lot to tell us about shamanism. And um, finally, uh, the thing about being a rainmaker, I run a reforestation organization called Rain. Our website is Rain Umbrella. Dot org and we work in brazil we work with uh, black uh black women's communities in the favela and poor rural communities we also work with indigenous communities and yeah as i said i think there are a lot of things that shamanism can teach us uh particularly in the stories of moses in the tropes of uh shamanism that we see there so thank you very much i'm really excited thank you um and last but definitely not least rabbi harry rosenberg uh, thank you so much. And it's such an honor to be here on the panel with these other great minds. So just to take a lot of what I would like to say in life and put it in this few minute introduction, um, I'm going to be referencing a 2000 year old history of information that gets passed on from generation to generation. Not all the sources will be available in this three to five minutes. But like we said before on wokecourses.com, anyone who went to this uh, conference can take the course for free without charge and see my sources. Um, so as mentioned before, when I was introduced, I come from a famous rabbi, the Vilna Gon. And Danny, I didn't know about your lineage. That's incredible also. Makes a lot of sense now. Uh, the Vilna Gon had a principle that until you can fully understand the sciences, you cannot fully understand the Torah. And I try to look through that lens when learning the Torah. And when I'm studying Torah, I keep running into this elephant in a room. It's this scene on Yom Kippur, which everyone in the world knows. It's, you know, a Jewish holiday that is just universally known as Jewish. But most people don't know what really is going on there. So we have this scene in the Torah where the high priest is fasting for 24 hours, doesn't sleep for 24 hours, separates from his family for a week. He's in this total state and he's walking in to atone for the sin of Adam into this room that he goes in one day, once a year. And he goes into this room with a pan of coals and a pan of incense and he, it's a double curtain, so it's an airtight room. He goes in, puts the coals on the floor, then drops the incense on the coals. And according to the Jewish law, Maimonides codifies it, he had to wait in that room for it to become completely filled with smoke. And only then, after the room was completely filled with smoke, was he allowed to leave. And so for me, I was wondering, how is the atonement for the sin of Adam, you know, the, the biggest deal in the whole entire Torah, 
actualized through standing in a room filled with plant smoke extract? That for me was a really serious question. And then furthermore, I was looking into this high priest of Israel. And if you look in the Talmud on Gittin 55a, Talmud, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, it actually says the daughter of the priest, her name was Bat Paniel, the daughter of Paniel. So we're calling this priest Paniel. And we say, why we call the, the high priest who goes in this room Paniel? And the answer was because he goes and serves in the innermost chamber. So I said to myself, okay, there's something going on here. Let's try to apply some science and understanding. So let's backtrack to the whole entire start of the situation. Adam is in the Garden of Eden, and we're actually taught that the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden in Hebrew, is two separate locations. You have the Garden, which was the geographic region he was located, and then you have Eden, which was actually a specific part of Adam's brain, which emanated light and joy and pleasure. And Adam was in Eden within the Garden at a, at a specific time. And we see this reference to this light off the bat, because on day one, we see the Torah creates light. God's creating light. But only a few days later, do we see God creating the sun and the moon. So the main question is, what is this light that's, that, that Adam is experiencing um, on day one? And the truth is, he wasn't around until a few days later. But the commentators all say that this was the light called Or Haganuz, the light of the brain that was stored away for the future generations. But Adam had a taste of it on the sixth day of creation. This, and that was the light in his brain, this initial light that was created. But what happened was, according to Kabbalistic teachings, is when Adam sinned, the light left his brain and was sucked into the earth, what you would call the klipa, the shell, and into the mundane matters, the plants. And all of a sudden, the purpose of the people of Israel, according to Kabbalistic teachings, was to extract those sparks and bring it back to the brain. And all of a sudden, where, did the, where does the sages teach us this light went? This light went, the first sparks went into Egypt. So the purpose of the people of Israel was to form a nation, go into Egypt, and extract these sparks. So we see that uh, uh, Jacob gets called Israel when the team finally forms. Let's say the nation that's going to do this mission is going to come from you, Jacob. He gets his name changed to Israel. What happens? He's fighting an angel. He wins the battle. And all of a sudden, he gets his name changed to Israel. And he says, I'm calling this place Paniel, because here I saw God face to face. So all of a sudden I say, oh, wait, Peniel surfacing again. And then the children of Israel end up forming their nation and they go right into Egypt to extract the sparks. But we actually brought a whole entire forest of acacia trees with us, planted them. And according to the sages, we stared at those trees for hundreds of years, knowing that one day we would bring them out and we would have a redemption through them. Then all of a sudden we leave and we go into the desert and we actually bring these trees. And guess what? We also brought Moses with us who grew up in the Egyptian palace and knew all about their information of plants and medicine and minds and different states of mind. And interesting enough, we believe that the gods Horus and Osiris were the Egyptians believed were born from acacia trees. And so we're bringing in the same tree that their gods come from. So it seems like there's something going on here with the sparks that are there. We're learning about that culture and we leave with the information and the same trees. We spend about 40 years in the desert learning how to make extractions, as it was spoken about before. And the whole entire process culminates with the man standing in a room filled with plant extract smoke to go into the sparks, take it back up, elevate it, and bring it into his brain. And I know I'm going a little past my time, but I'd like to just end on this note that um, the people are going to discuss what was the actual incense made of in this room. And there's, there's scientists, a lot of research, but we do know is during the first temple period, the coals of the temple were made from this acacia, which is one of the number one DMT containing plants in the world. 
And we do know that these coals were used elsewhere when the angel takes it off the altar and brings it to the lips of the prophet and touches it to the lips and it purifies the angel in the same language used as the rectification of the sin of Adam. So what I want to suggest in the final 30 seconds is the overlap that between the psychedelic state and this mystical experience is we know that when you are on these plant medicines, you're hyperactivating the neurological network where trauma is stored and it's very beneficial to erase trauma. So when we're using the words rectifying the sin of Adam, we can start to see the science and replace it with erasing generational trauma that we are storing in us from the sin of Adam. Whatever trauma we have in us from needing to be afraid of food and, and shortages and war, that trauma that we're storing on humans from our ancestors gets erased to a degree through these plant medicines. And the high priest of Israel was chosen to keep that memory alive of the free human uh, that we should be worthy to be one day. And there's a lot more to discuss, but this is a little synopsis and it's on the course and we'll have questions after. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Um, so, Dr. Elon, um, I'd love to invite you to continue telling us um, about the cannabis discoveries you've made. I think that would be a really um, exciting and uh, useful way to continue grounding this conversation. So if you'd be open to continuing that, um, I think we'd really appreciate it. So I can just talk, or if I can share the screen again, I can do a little bit more with that. It's not that long of a presentation. That would be excellent. Yeah, if you could share the screen, I think that I think definitely um, I'm seeing in the chat people are really really enjoying it. So if you could do that, okay. that would be excellent. Yeah, share your screen now. You have okay. privileges. There it is. It's coming. Okay. Okay. Um. Where were we then? Okay, so, right, so we talked about this find that is, that is evidence for the actual inhalation of um, cannabis smoke that comes from the Pamir Mountains of Western China, circa 700 BCE. Um, and now we come back to Israel. And this is something that was uh, mentioned uh, by Natalie, I think, in the introduction today, um, about from and it's from Tel Arad uh, in the Negev Desert of Israel. There's a temple there uh, that was part of the site, and you can go visit. It's a national park, and within here's a reconstruction of what the temple looks like. It's actually sort of a miniature version of Solomon's Temple uh, in Jerusalem, and in the back of the temple is Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, and inside that Holy of Holies there were two standing stones which may represent perhaps Yahweh and perhaps the other one, his consort, we're not sure. And in front of each was an altar. There were two altars. And if you look at the pictures of the altars from above, there was a black resinous substance in each of them. The one on the left was analyzed and it contains cannabis. And the other one contained frankincense. Apparently they were burning the two of them together and inhaling both substances. This is all the result. Now, this was excavated in the 60s, but only five years ago was this stuff actually analyzed. It has now been published in uh, the journal Tel Aviv by Iran Ariyeh, Baruch Hosein, and Dvori Namdar. So that's proof for about 800 BCE use of cannabis in ritual context in ancient Judah. And it's probably the tip of the iceberg. There are other substances that are available in the Southern Levant in what is Israel, Palestine today. And I'm just going to run through a few of them because we tend to ignore them, but they're probably really important. So one of them is ephedra. 
which is called Shavitan Risani in Hebrew. It's more of a stimulant and an anti-congestant. It's not so much a hallucinogen. Uh, it's part of what you use for curing all kinds of things that are wrong with the human body from time to time. Um, a very important substance is probably wild Syrian rue, Shavar uh, Levan, Peganum Harmala. Harmala exists in lots of different places, especially in the uh, desert dry areas, uh, and it contains active alkaloids, and the important ones are harmine and harmaline. Uh, and these are very important. Uh, this is a hallucinogenic substance, but it's better when you do it with other substances, when you combine things. Um, one of the things you can combine it with is, and this has already been mentioned um, by a couple of people before, um, I think uh, Rabbi Harry just talked about acacia. Uh, the acacia tree apparently has uh, substances, not apparently, it does have DMT. Um, but the thing with DMT is that it's inactive if you just take DMT. What you actually need is something that's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And harmala, the thing we saw before, does just that. And this is, this is what ay ayahuasca does. You take two different plants, and each of them, work, they work together to achieve the effect. And I don't know if anybody's actually tried putting these two together, but they, these things grow together in the deserts of Israel, uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it uh, unsupervised because it might it be really, uh, you might have a bad trip. In any case, all, all of these substances induce vomiting, diarrhea. It's really unpleasant. So they knew this. They wanted to achieve an effect. That's maybe one of the reasons why cannabis and opium were preferred substances because they didn't have these evil effects. Uh, you've, I'm sure, heard about mandrake, the dudaim, which is mentioned in the Song of Songs. It is identified with Mandragora otomalis. It's not 100% clear that this is a good identification, but there you go. Um, it contains all kinds of alkaloids. It's clearly hallucinogenic, although also a little bit poisonous. Uh, and then there's uh, wormwood, which may be hallucinogenic, not greatly so. And this, of course, all speaks to the idea of the entheogen theory of religion, which was first... Uh, elaborated by Carl Ruck et al. in this journal, which you can download yourselves uh, on the, in the first issue or, or the 11th issue of Journal of Psych Psychedelic Drugs. Um, and for a more popular publication about this kind of stuff, there's a really interesting article in the Atlantic from a few years ago from 2013 about religion as the product of psychotropic drug use. And I think that I can uh, pretty much stop right there and then let other people talk. Thank you so much. Um, that was super interesting. Danny, go right ahead. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So um, Haramal, which you brought up there, is related to the Hebrew word cherem, uh, which is uh, taboo or separate. Say again? It's also in Arabic. And in Arabic, haram. Yeah, exactly. And there's a very interesting one of the hadith of Muhammad, um, which says that if you, I'm going to find it here, um, whoever takes a mythkal of harmal in water for 40 mornings each day, so shall wisdom enlighten his heart and he shall be healed from 72 diseases, which is quite interesting. Mythkal is 4.25 grams. That's a large dose. Uh, and we have a very interesting number, 40. Um, we see that on the, uh, which is the time that Moses spends up the, up the mountain, of course. We can go into the, um, into the number 40, which is massive. Um, I'll leave that to other people to think through. Um, but, um, yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, what, what you brought up as well, um, Dr. Ilan, is the, this concept of enzyme inhibition. 
And we don't, and we see it with Hamal. We also see it with something else, which is the anointing oil. And the ingredients of the anointing oil are four, uh, myrrh, cassia, cinnamon, and, um, probably cannabis. I'm not going to argue whether it is or not. And isn't that interesting? Cassia and cinnamon, um, cassia and cinnamon together inhibit six. Well, there are, there's a system called the cytochrome system and it contains many, uh, many enzymes. And six of them are involved in breaking down 99% of the drugs that you're likely to encounter as a human. And five of them are inhibited by cinnamon. And one of them is inhibited by cassia, which is another form of cinnamon. So you've got cinnamomum verum and cinnamomum uh, cassia. So those two mixed together inhibit, basically open your whole system up for whatever psychoactives that you might take after that. And in that mixture, the shaman hamishcha, masha wipe or to paint which was wiped on the priests when they came into the into the tabernacle you also have myrrh and the psychopharmacology of myrrh is 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 fascinating it has a whole load of i mean i won't go into it too deeply but it contains a whole load of opioid receptor agonists it works on the same system as uh opium and heroin uh for example and you've also got um you've also got cannabis which works on all the things it is so with those enzymes inhibited uh, all of those wonderful things in the myrrh can get straight to your brain without being broken down on the way, the same way that DMT gets to your brain if you take uh, you take it along with um, with harmala or harming. And of course, this was only the first stage of what the uh, what the priests used to do after they've all been anointed with this uh, anointing oil. Then the uh, the less high priests go off and they eat the showbread uh, on their own lechem uh, hapanim. So we're back to that story of uh, Paniel. Um, the panim, the bread of presences, and there's a really interesting quote from uh, from the Talmud, which um, I'll just read it quickly. It says, um, "In Simeon the upright's time, a blessing was sent into the Omer, the two loaves of bread and the showbread, and every priest who received only the size of an olive became satiated, and some was left over. But after him, these things were cursed, and every priest only got the size of a bean." And the delicate ones refused to take it altogether, but the voracious ones accepted and consumed. It once happened. One took his own share and his fellows. He was nicknamed Robber until his death, right? Um, that's from Tractate Yoma in the Talmud. Um, so isn't that interesting? We've got, the, we've got all the kind of uh, various drug tropes there. We've got very small doses. We've got some people for whom it was too much. We've got some people who wanted more. And I don't know if you've got a friend called, uh, I don't know, Greedy Tim or Drug Hoover Dolly uh, who picked up that name at a festival. But we've also got someone who took somebody else's share and then stuck with that name until the end of, the, uh, until the end of their life. Uh, we don't know what was in the showbread, Lechem uh, Hapanim, except for the fact that it had uh, frankincense connected to it. And frankincense works on the GABA system, which is the same system that um, uh, Valium works on, for example. But frankincense does amazing things. Um, in combination with cannabis, it's, it's very, very complex. And this is what's really interesting about these things, is how the synergies work together. So just very briefly, the combination of frankincense and cannabis um, um, well, they they work in different ways. The, 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 it's complex at the level of the synapse, but the way that they work on the GABA system is uh, one of them um, increases the amount of GABA. Um, that's uh, so that's THC. Sorry, THC decreases the amount of GABA, and uh, dehydroabiotic acid increases the amount of GABA. So that's in frankincense and cannabis. But on the dopaminergic system. Uh, they both increase the amount of dopamine in the synaptic cleft, which basically means it puts a whole load of dopamine into your synapses. And finally, what's really interesting about dopamine is dopamine is involved in cognition and language production. 
And this was what took place inside this holy hotbox that we've already talked about. The holy hotbox was called Dabir, which is related to the word Dabar, which is related to the word word. And what were people doing there? They would talk to angels and then they would come out and they would um, they would they would uh, put words together, sometimes in the form of song. Um, and um, isn't this fascinating? The fact that, um, that, that, that they both increase dopamine and this is involved in uh, language production. And, and what were they doing? What were they, what were they doing in there? They were doing divination. You know, they're talking to angels. They're coming out with advice. So putting things together and then coming out and presenting it to the world. And then you've also finally got the T of the trip V3 ion channels, which gets a whole lot more complex, but they seem to be connected to aura symptoms of migraine as well. Um, as I mentioned before, seeing presences, hearing voices, um, all that kind of jazz. And both of them, in fact, cannabis and frankincense, uh, we might have seen how they affect people when they're having epileptic fits. So they seem to work on the trip V3 ion channels, which are involved in um, aura, but they don't go as far. They reduce the um, reduce the likelihood of someone having an epileptic fit as well, which would be pushing things a little bit too far. Jenny, thank you so much. Um, that was so interesting. And you crammed really so much information into such a short amount of time. Um, thank you. I, I think that really leads into a natural point for um, Harry to jump in. You know, I want to ask you a question based on your opening remarks um, about Yom Kippur um, and the, the high priest. Um, can you tell us a bit about, you know, the ritual that took place? And can you also address if you're saying that um, psychedelics or specifically uh, DMT, as we had discussed, um, is really necessary for atonement of the Jewish people in the Bible. Um, I was hoping you could you could touch on that for the audience. Uh, thanks so much. And again, I just want to say to Danny, you just blew my mind. He's contributing so much to this space by doing what you're doing. So thank you. Um, and yeah, so, you know, even what I'm saying really needs a lot of what Danny's saying, because it's not about one chemical or or one plant right now, it's about what happens in a certain combination of plants and what it does to the brain. And I don't know if we know 100% yet what the brain of a human would feel like in that room. Um, but we do know that there are indigenous, endogenous psycho psychoactive chemicals in our body that are naturally flowing around. DMT flows in our body. And we do now see it found in plants on the earth. So it does complement this theory of saying what was once naturally accessible in our body now can only be taken out from the plants of the earth, which is word for word, a translation of a Kabbalistic teaching of the whole functionality of the thing. Um, but to answer your question is, I don't think that the solution right now is for every Jewish person to smoke DMT to atone and clear his generational trauma. Uh, we do see a point in the Torah when the Israelites were in the desert where the Kabbalistic teachings say that they had atoned already for the sin of Adam and Eve when they were standing at the mountain. Um, they were out of that sin. And it says that the 600,000 ministering angels came down and placed crowns on their heads and they reaccessed the light of Adam and Eve. Uh, so there was a period where the whole entire nation was in this place of light in their brain, although it was short-lived because at the sin of the golden calf, that went back out into the world. And we had to once again atone for it by going into the klipa, into the shell. But I would say we, you know, we will anticipate in the future human beings should once again have that light in their brain naturally because it's, it's part of the human technology. So I don't think we need to force everyone to have the psychedelic state unless that's something they're called for. Um, but as we could talk about later on, 
there is some very deep purpose to what happened in the 1960s and in the, in the hippie psychedelic revolution of how many Jewish people were involved in there and what Kabbalistic implications that may have and why maybe that was the only way this could have unfolded. So there's a lot to talk about there as well. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to turn things over to Ariella. Um, and I wanted to ask, how does, you know, Jewish tradition and Jewish wisdom and not intergenerational knowledge, um, in addition to your experience and knowledge of plant medicine from, from other sources and traditions, how do the two work together to inform your Jewish practice uh, today? Thank you, Rachel. And just shout out to the brilliant minds working on these different fronts, you know, Danny, Harry, and David. It's um, it's so great to hear you speak to these like archaeological and biblical pieces, you know, because I, um, yeah, so I have spent a lot of time in in ceremonies and have a lot of this experience of sitting with these medicines, right? When you have plant medicine in your body and you smell frankincense, it alters your consciousness. And though it's not a psychedelic or a psychotropic in and of itself, the actual physical experience of smelling, you know, these sacred scents while you're in ceremony, I'm sure other people can also attest to it, um, has really transformative power. Um, just want to see here real quick. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I'm coming to, you know, sitting with people who are in many ways, like more academically learned is I really take it back to, um, the ancestors and the physical experience of, you know, sitting with these medicines and connecting, um, you know, connecting to the people who were in these places when we, look at all the text, you know, it's often that we say, you know, were they doing this? And there's so many interpretations and the Hebrew gives so many ways to understand these different experiences that people were having. And I'm so grateful that people are working on that front, that people are offering that wisdom. And I think that there's, um, there's so much to say also for the, the physical experience for, um, you know, what, what situations people were in in the ancient times that um, that we don't really have access to in these days. You know, when when we look at ancient times, you know, people were connected to the Hebrew word in such a different way than we're connected to the Hebrew word today. You know, they just, the word was more powerful. We didn't sit here reading a lot of text. We didn't have all these books on our shelves. You know, the word, each letter, as we look at it as a doorway, they really were living in interrelationship with the letters and the words. Um, and I think that it goes for the plants as well, you know, that people were in such a deeper connection with plants that it wasn't separate. It wasn't like I live my life and I drive my car and I live in this sort of, you know, um, modernized society. It was like every day was an experience with plants. You know, you needed plants for everything. They were the main um, experience of life. They weren't inner, you know, uh, they weren't separated from life in the way that we are today. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'll, I'll end there. Thank you so much. Um, honestly, I have a lot more questions that I wanted to get out, but there are so many excellent questions in the Q&A that 
I'm just going to turn it over in that direction. So um, the first question I want to bring up is from an anonymous attendee for Dr. Elon. Um, it says, when you started your talk, you seemed to be pessimistic, suggesting scholars find what they're looking for. But you seem to be more optimistic towards the end, mentioning a tip of the iceberg. Can you explain what your view is? Do you think psychoactive use was prominent during biblical times and a key theme in, in biblical religion? Yes. So um, I, the natural sciences have revolutionized our knowledge. And this has all happened in the last 10 years, maybe the last 15 years. Before that, people were looking at all kinds of biblical terms and even stuff in the Talmud and it was clear that there's stuff going on with mind-altering substances and ritual activity and smoke. And uh, it was clear that something is going on, but you couldn't be 100% sure. But now with science, we're actually finding the seeds. We're finding the plant fibers. We're finding the, the phytoliths, the fossilized pollen of things. And, and we're finding them in contexts that are usually either ritual or mortuary. And so... Um, that's what I mean by tip of the iceberg. As research progresses now, uh, using the natural sciences at various institutions around the world, we're finding more and more hard evidence for the use of these psychoactive materials in archaeological contexts. So I'm now I'm op optimistic. I'm a little pessimistic about what happened until now. Thank you. Um, another question for you, Dr. Elon is why do you think the use of these various psychotropic substances are not mentioned explicitly in biblical literature? There are two reasons. One reason is that we don't know what a lot of these substances are. And I'll give one example. Um, Danny mentioned kinemon, cinnamon. We actually don't know for sure what kinemon in Hebrew is. We think that it might be the same as cinnamon, and but we don't know. And that is true for about 80% of the substances that are mentioned in the biblical text. And the same holds true for the Egyptian ancient literature and for Mesopotamia. Uh, all kinds of people think they found opium or think they found cannabis in the textual literature. But others have come along and say, you can't say that because, look, here's a contradiction. And so we're sort of uh, at, at a loose end as far as being able to solidly identify the philology of words and to identify the actual plant materials. One classic example is, and this has already been mentioned by a couple people and a couple people asked this question, the, and Donnie has, has dealt with this already in the past, the word, the term knebosim, which means literally some kind of stock that has a perfumed character to it. And that has been uh, identified as cannabis by Sula Bennett already 80 years ago, uh, because the sound of the word bosim sounds like cannabis. And in Mesopotamia, uh, already in the early uh, first millennium BC, there's a term called kanubu, which sounds pretty much the same, and it's medicinal. So um, some of these things sound right, it looks good, but you don't know 100%. And you can play with this stuff until the world comes to an end, but you're never going to know for sure until you use the science and you can identify the actual materials. The second reason that it's not clear is that the biblical writer, especially the Deuteronomistic historian who wrote Deuteronomy and Joshua and Kings, um, they had a theological agenda. And the agenda was pretty much anti all of this stuff. Um, they represent the later priests who are, uh, priests who are moralistic and, and, and socially oriented. The former priests, like 
like uh, like uh, Samuel, for example, or Elijah, these are more shamanistic priests. And so those are the ones that do this kind of stuff. The later ones don't. And the Deuteronomistic historian sort of subverted all of the mentions and sort of hid the stuff. He couldn't erase it because it was a holy text, or they couldn't erase it. But they they toned it way down to make it hard to find. Thank you. Um, the next question um, is, Danny, did you want to pipe in? Sorry. I Yes, go for it. Yeah, just briefly. Um, I think there's another reason is that we don't know uh, that a lot of the things that uh, we don't know that a lot of plants do have psychoactive uh, activity. Uh, for example, I was nervous today, so I had some frankincense um, and I had some myrrh as well because I was really nervous. Um, I don't I don't know if um, if. Uh, uh, like uh, like Dr. Yelan says, there's there's and he's right. There's plenty of things that we don't know the derivation of. But the um, the most commonly given um, um, indications, if you look at the Song of Songs, for example, there's there's a list of them: camphire, spikenard, saffron, canabosem, uh, 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 cinnamon, frankincense, myrrh, and agar wood, with all the chief spices. Every single one of those, uh, with possibly the exception of of camphire, um, camphire is henna, and there are there are um, there are uh, uses of henna, traditional uses, which is using it as an aphrodisiac. But every single one of those uh, has psychoactive um, psychoactive activities as well, including actually thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates. That's a really interesting one because pomegranate itself is one which um, it works on also on the cytochrome system. In fact, if you eat a load of um, pomegranates, it inhibits the production of one of those cytochrome enzymes, which I was saying at the level of the DNA. All right. So, uh, yes, um, Dr. Ilan's absolutely right. We don't know exactly. Um, but what a lot of the commentators have said um, going a long way back, including more, all kinds of people, um, that, um, yeah, things like frankincense. People don't think of frankincense as, as psychoactive. It's, it, it's anxiolytic. It reduces anxiety. And we know from tests on um, creative thinking that when you reduce anxiety, your creative thinking goes up. And what is divination? other than a complicated ritual of creative thinking. Actually, I think it's much more than a complicated ritual of creative thinking. But one way of looking at, at it is, um, you know, and, and as I said, this has been tested, the, the more chilled out you are, the more likely you are to think of novel solutions to problems, which is what you'd like to be doing in a cloud of smoke in the, uh, the Debeer. Thank you. Um... The next question, um, and then we'll start wrapping up shortly. Unfortunately, this feels like it's going by so quickly. Um, so someone just submitted a question that they heard that Moses was having a psychedelic experience when he viewed the burning bush. Are there any specific references for this? Um, I don't know if anyone wants to jump in on this specific question. Uh, I'll jump in for a quick second. Um, as Professor David Elon said, a doctor professor, that we can never know exactly for sure what was happening. Um, and I don't know if we know exactly where Moses was at the time to look for archaeological remains. But what I could say is this is the opinion of Maimonides says that every uh, prophecy or every uh, vision that happened to the, the people of Israel was in the dream state while they were dreaming. Um, we even see in the Talmud, it says dreams are one sixtieth of prophecy. 
and I believe in our dream state, and you know, there's a lot of science that's still going to have to be learned, is when the pineal gland is actually activated a little bit more than usual. You're secreting your melatonin to fall asleep. And I believe Dr. Rick Strassman proved over the last few years with rats, at least, that the pineal gland is where the DMT could possibly secrete from, as well as other places in the body. So what we do know is if uh, if Moses did or didn't take a chemical, we don't know. But we do know is that he was in a dream state where there were unique chemicals that he didn't have access to in his awake state that was taking him to this vision. Whether he had it like Adam had it, you know, naturally produced, or did he have a plant medicine that he learned from Pharaoh's house and ran away to the desert like, you know, an 18-year-old child may an experiment? That's also very possible. But either way, the outcome was the same. Thank you. Um, another question for Dr. Elon. Um, you spoke about the questionable identification of various plants. Is she team being identified as Acacia also in question? Um, not really. Not it isn't. Um, but and there's there's a good reason for that, and that is that these people are in the Sinai Desert when the tabernacle is being constructed, right? And they make an ark out of shittim wood. It's just about the only tree that you can derive wood from in the Sinai Desert. That's it. There's one other tree, but even in the Iron Age and in the Bronze Age, it was mostly deforested. There was almost none of them left. The terebinth, the Atlantic terebinth, and that was almost gone even then. So you're just left with the Keisha tree. And so that's Shittim. Thank you. Um, and I think this will be our last question, sadly. Um, but is there any evidence that the Israelites were ingesting DMT containing brews made with acacia? Who's going to answer? There's no evidence. I mean, it's this is speculative and it's fascinating. And I have to say that what it really needs, a lot of these things need people to try this stuff and publish their findings, to do it in a controlled way. And nobody's doing this, as far as I know, in a way that is then published. Maybe people are out there mixing frankincense and cannabis and breathing it in and taking notes, but I haven't seen scientific literature. Maybe Danny has. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, that's how I take my bath, really. Um, yeah, it's a good place to hotbox. Um, you can see in, uh, there's an article I published in the Journal of Psychoactive Substances, so, uh, Psychoactive Sciences called Getting High with the Most High, which goes into quite a lot of depth into, uh, into the academic evidence that I can find in there. Um, there's also something very interesting, which is the combination of nutmeg and myrrh, which is mentioned in the Kalashakra Tantra. Um, and, and the effects of that are, are, um, uh, it's like uh, in, in terms of pharmacology, it's very similar to um, what is in the, the anointing oil and the effects of that, which have been described. Um, there's an Erewid article again um, in, in uh, what's in that book, Neuro Apocalypse, my second book, um, which talks about a lot of this stuff. The effects are um, a, 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 a fierce martial god uh, and a fireball emanating um, ferocity and um, and all these kind of divinatory stuff. So there are um, there are other suggestions that that particular pharmacological combination does have a very kind of fierce aspect to it. Thank you so much. Um, does anyone have any closing words they'd like to share that maybe was didn't come up in any of the questions thus far? Um, 
panelists? Well, I would love Maybe. to. Excellent. The, um, just the Mizbeah and the Mishkan and just mention a little bit about the acacia and how it's spoken about in Exodus. So as many people know, um, there's chapters 25 through 27 in Exodus are all about building the tabernacle, right? Which is the, um, the Mizbeach. And, you know, the, um, there's 450 verses in there, which is a lot of Torah dedicated to like exactly the copper clasps, the crimson, tapestries you know with the cherubs on them it's like very very detailed about how to build these altars and over and over and over again in that text it talks about acacia wood and so you know similarly to where harry kind of was reading that and going like why acacia and it's just it's fascinating to me how often it comes up that it's you know it must be like every other sentence they're talking about the acacia wood and that in the holy of holies you know is all built with acacia wood with the pillars around it so i find that to be fascinating even if there isn't like evidence that we know of yet that they were using acacia wood to ingest it was the sacred wood that they were using and maybe it was the only wood that they had access to in the desert but i think that it's more significant than just it was the only wood around because they could have used stones and they could have used so many other different um building materials I would just also point out there's an article by a scholar named Benny um, Shannon um, in uh, that was published, I think, in 2012. And it is about um, the mixture of Harmala and Acacia. And he talks about Moses and the burning bush. And he has this whole scenario about that's actually the combination that um, that the writers of the text were thinking about when Moses saw the burning bush. Um, and so anybody who wants to, I think it's, you can access it. It's open access uh, on the first issue of the Journal of Psychedelic, I don't know, I'm not, when, it's 2012. Benny Shannon, look it up on Google, you'll find it. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for your incredible insights. You've all contributed your own expertise and perspectives on this matter to create a really, really interesting and informative conversation that hopefully will continue over the course of the next two days and beyond. Um, thank you all so much. And I think the next panel will begin shortly. Thank you. Thanks very much, everyone. Great session.